Hope Church. Let's go. Um, we're gonna hop into Matthew chapter chapter ten. Matthew, we on? GoPro. All right. Well, I'll, I'll keep with this. So uh, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter ten this morning. Last week we finished chapter nine, so we are making progress uh, through the book of Matthew. Even though it looks like we're gonna be here for a while, uh, so get comfortable in, in the book. Um, but last week we saw Jesus tell his disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers um, into his harvest because, you know, the, the harvest is great, indeed great. And so just we need to remember that, to be optimistic people that so many times um, we get tricked into thinking that the harvest is small and that not that many people are interested in hearing about things about God, about hearing about our, our Savior and King Jesus. Um, but Jesus tell, tells us that, our world is full of people who are ready for harvest, ready to become part of his family, ready to be part of his kingdom. And we need to believe that and act accordingly um, and therefore not be afraid um, or ashamed. Do I need to use one of these uh, other mics? We're good now? All right. Very good. Um, in that case, let's go ahead and go into prayer, and then we'll get right into chapter 10. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have this morning, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are God, uh, that you are holy, that you are just, that you are loving, that you are all that is good, and there is not one bit of evil within you, not one trace. And we thank you, God, that out of your great love for us, you sent your Son, Jesus, for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you see us with compassion um, that your desire um, is to seek and to save those who are lost. Uh, Lord, so we pray that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit in us and through us, and that you would work in our communities and in our world, and that you would help your people to be bold and to be courageous as we see um, in chapter 10 uh, this morning your call for that um, in our lives. And so help us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen. All right, so he had just prayed for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then Matthew follows this up here at this point in verse 12. It says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So it seems here that Matthew seems to indicate that there's this transition that happens, that the, you already have these 12 disciples, but here at this point, Jesus, as they've, they've walked with him for a while and they've heard his teachings, that Jesus at this point gives them a special power. He gives them apostolic authority. Um, and he says, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So we've seen earlier that Jesus has power over all of these things. In the first nine chapters, we see that Jesus had power over unclean spirits, over all kinds of sickness, over all kinds of disease. And now, he also has the authority and power to give that authority and to give that power to his 12 disciples here. 
And then it says, the names of these twelve disciples are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So you got two sets of brothers. Philip and Bartholomew, that Philip is very different from the Philip in the book of Acts. Don't get them confused. Um, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Um, Thomas is the one who doubted, um, and we all learn from his doubt um, why we have such reason for great faith. Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote this book. James, the son of Alphaeus, we don't know much about. Um, And Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, not two tunics, nor sandals, nor extra staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, um, if you've never read the book of Matthew before, you might be asking, why does Jesus tell his disciples not to go to the Samaritans, not to go to the Gentiles, but only to the lost sheep of Israel? If you have read the book before, you still might wonder why Jesus says this here, and then in Matthew 28 tells the same apostles to go into all the nations to preach the gospel. Obviously, all the apostles except for Judas Iscariot, the one who had betrayed him. So the, the reason it, for this is simple. Um, in Matthew 10, describes a temporary mission of the disciples uh, before Jesus went to the cross. So this is a temporary mission. Matthew 28 describes the permanent mission of his disciples to reach every people group. So we have the temporary mission that was necessary because Jesus is the promised Messiah for the nation of Israel. Okay, and so this needs to be done. His offer to be the true king of Israel is a legitimate offer. So it's necessary that that offer is given. And then the response is already known by the Lord what it's going to be. That it's going to be, you know, rejected. Um, The Father and the Son know this. Uh, And so we'll see that Jesus ultimately feels this rejection in Matthew 23. And the fullness of that rejection plays out in chapter 26 and 27 with his trial and crucifixion. Okay? So those are, this is temporary part of the message. Luke 22, 35 and 36 tells us um, very clearly that this was temporary because he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack and who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that which is written must still be accomplished. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. 
So they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And so this is right before he goes out and is arrested. Okay, But you see clearly, he said, okay, I told you before, you don't need to take anything with you. Now, in the future, you, know, you can take with you, you know, provisions. But one of the things that's really cool is that um, when he said to them, when I sent you out with nothing, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. You know, they didn't have any lack. Why is that? Because God provided for them through other people, even through the people that they were ministering, you know, to. Um, and so even now, there are going to be times where those on mission with Jesus must continue the mission without the resources that they would deem necessary for it. It's not all there. It's not all available. But you start and you trust the Lord to provide. I mean, that's the same thing, you know, just as a small example, the school in Tanzania. It's being built as the money is available to, you know, build it. And so they want to wait and say, well, we've got to collect every dime before we start, you know, to put a brick down. Um, you know, but you start the as you are able to and, and you move forward in faith, trusting that if the Lord has called you to do it, he will provide the resources necessary as they are needed in his timing. And just when you see the Lord's provision in a time of need, then that greatly increases your faith. It greatly increases the strength and the fortitude of the disciples. And so those are moments that if you experience those in your life that you hold on to for the rest of your life. To know you're going into a situation where you don't have enough and that only the Lord can provide it is oftentimes where the Lord stretches you and grows you and you see his love and his care you know, for your life. Um, you know, Brother Pepe down in Mexico when, when he was alive, um, he used to send the mission team out um, you know, once or twice a year. He would send them, especially the young ones, the ones newer on the, on the mission team, he would send them to the mountains and say, you know, you're going to be there for one week or two weeks and there's no money. Go. You know, and they would go and have to trust the Lord to provide for them, you know, places to stay and food to eat. You know, and usually they would come back from those experiences with such joy because they had seen the Lord provide for them as they needed it day by day. You know, and so that was a way to grow the faith of those missionaries was to put them in situations where only God could provide for them. And they would see the provision of God. Um, and so, you know, that's just, you know, perhaps a, a challenge for us, um, you know, in our, in our lives. Those things are, are harder to do as you, know, as you get older, but not impossible. You know, with Brother Pepe, he wasn't asking them to do anything that he himself, you know, hadn't done, hadn't experienced. Um, you know, when he, when he was in, uh, serving the Lord in Nepal, um, in Turkey, I can't remember which one he was in at the time, but there was a conference he needed to go to in Belgium and he's got a wife and a child, you know, one child at the time, a little one. And, you know, his provision is here's your, here's your train ticket and here's a few dollars, but it's not nearly enough for what's needed for the journey and what's needed 
for the food and you know the Lord yet provided for them you know along the way to make it where they needed to go and to make it back and so you know these are are, are experiences that many who have gone before us you know in the faith have experienced Psalm 84 is a good song. I'm good with, anyway, <laughs> so somebody's bobble lab working overtime in there. Like, here we go. Here we go. So it's like getting the word in. Yeah, we love it. We love it. So uh, I'm sure somebody will probably read that later. But we, uh, you know, you have those experiences that many who have gone before us in the faith, you know, have, have experienced. Um, you know, I look back in, in my, my own life and in early days in, in ministry, whether in university or shortly after that and in, in coming to Athens, you know, there were, there were times where the Lord provided in unusual ways. And that was wonderful. That was a beautiful thing, um, you know, to, to experience. And, you know, just to know, okay, Lord, this is what you want me to do and know there's not enough money you know, to pay the bills. Ooh, wake everybody up this morning. Not enough money to pay the bills. And, you know, you go to that mailbox when your rent's due. That's brutal. Um, you go, are we good? We, we solved that. We solved it. Let me back up. That step on something. Are we good now? Okay, sorry about that, folks. Um, but you go and, and you open that box and somebody had something, sent something days before that meet the exact need that you have, you know that God is with you and that he is providing for you. Um, and it's a beautiful thing to experience. Unfortunately, now, the way so much of modern missions is done is they won't even let people go until they have like 80 or 90% of their support raised. It's like you're not even allowed to get on the plane or to get on the bus or the train or whatever it is because, you know, the 401k isn't fully funded. You know, the retirement plan isn't fully funded. So therefore, you need to wait longer and raise more support in this. And it's, and it's in many ways, you know, our missions groups have, like, lost this key element of faith and trusting God to provide along the way as is needed. Overly concerned with the practicality forgetting that our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And sometimes we just need to ask him for one. You know, and so, you know, have faith. We need to have faith and not be afraid. And that's, as moving on, we get, because uh, so much of that, so much of our lack of willingness to step out is based on fear. And so that's really what it comes down to. And this is the point that we all have to take into account one way or another in our lives. Am I going to operate in faith or am I going to operate in fear? Am I live my life in faith or am I live my life in fear? Those are real choice. And there's not a whole lot of in between. You can operate in faith or you can operate in fear. And God wants us to be people who operate in faith because He says. In verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
Go back to the beginning of that. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, that doesn't sound like a great strategy. <laughs> you know, that, does that sound like a great strategy? I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, sheep are what? Pretty defenseless. They don't have any big claws. They don't have any, like, razor-sharp teeth designed to tear flesh. You know, they, they munch on, like, grass and stuff, right? I mean, that's about what their, that's, that's what their teeth are for. You know, they are designed strictly um, as vegetarians. They are vegetarians. So, but I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. What are wolves intended? Not one wolf, but in the midst of wolves. Because wolves do what? They hunt in a pack. And they are designed to kill. They have razor sharp claws. They have razor sharp teeth. They are designed to tear and destroy flesh. Like, that's what it means to be a wolf. Like, that's how they survive. They don't survive unless they're tearing flesh. Okay, I mean, let's just be real. I know that sounds graphic, but let's be real about this picture that Jesus has given. And he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, what he's telling us as followers of Jesus is, you are not going to out-violence. You're not going to win by out-violencing the wickedness of this world. You're not going to win by fighting violence with violence. That's not going to work. Even when Jesus says, okay, you know, say, so, okay, we got two swords. Okay, that's enough. Remember what happens in that scene next? When they're surrounded by all the soldiers and Peter's like, I got the sword. I'm going to use it. And he chops off the, you know, he takes a swing and he chops off the ear of the high servant, um, the high priest's servant. And what does Jesus do? Picks up the ear, puts it back on the dude, and heals him. And goes, you know, with the violent wolves. You know, I mean, even with that, Jesus isn't saying, well, you're just going to be able to outfight the world and the wickedness in the world and through violence overcome violence. Now, this lesson isn't designed to be a conversation about self-defense and when it's net, you know right or to use your sword or you know whatever else you have to defend yourself. That's not the point of this. The point is that Jesus is telling us that in this world. In our everyday lives, we are as sheep. We are largely defendless in the midst of great wickedness. Now, you think about the disciples of Jesus, because they are at this point an extreme minority, very small number of people. The religious leaders of their own people group want to be rid of them because they feel threatened that this could gain more momentum. They could lose their places of authority and their power. They don't, people don't like that. When people have authority and power, they don't give it up easily. They don't want to give that up. Then, that's in the larger context of they live in the midst of the Roman war machine. You know, at this point, I mean, this is, one of, if not the greatest, one of the greatest military forces ever assembled on the planet up to this point in history 
that at this point, pretty much everybody who stood in the way has gotten slaughtered. No matter who has you know, rebelled against them, that has been met with overwhelming force. Overwhelming weapon technology and tactics. These guys were masters at warfare and dominating others. Okay? So Jesus is like, listen, you're not going to overthrow the Roman Empire with swords. You're not going to win anything that way. So you need to be wise as serpents. Use different tactics. And harmless as doves. And then, but he says this, but beware of men. You know, don't be naive about the plots and the wickedness of people in this world, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You know, they're going to beat you. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, and as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So even here we see the Gentiles really aren't forgotten about, which would be us. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So what Jesus is saying is when you really need it, if you're in crisis, don't sit there and just worry, worry, worry about going to say, you know, you can pray, you can, grant your, you can gain your spiritual fortitude, your courage is in the Lord, but don't worry about it in that moment when you need it. You know, if your reliance is on the Father, He's going to give it to you. He's going to give you your words that you need in that time. Now, another point here that we need to make sure we fully understand, if Jesus' desire here was just to take out all of his enemies, he doesn't need a sword. All he has to do is just, you're dead. And everybody who's part of the Roman Empire is dead. Every Pharisee who is a hypocrite and against the ways of God is dead. Every false teacher, every false prophet, every person who was not with him, boom, you're dead. Boom. Do you understand? That's the power that Jesus has because he is ultimately the creator, the sustainer, and the judge of all life. But in his meekness, he restrains his strength. You know, we, we need to fully understand that this is what the scriptures teach us about Jesus. That in him and through him, all things exist. In Colossians chapter 1, very, very clear about this. Reality. The power of Jesus Christ. You don't understand who we're talking about and who we're dealing with. And Jesus goes on to say, he said, you know, this is not going to be easy for you. That the name of Jesus is going to cause you problems. The name of Jesus is going to cause you problems because he says, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
Now, a few things here. Again, you'll be hated by him for my name's sake. You ever notice that even people who are, generally even people who are atheists, they don't have that big a problem if you just talk about like God. It's like, well, I don't believe in God. Right? Or people who are just, you know, against you in that way. You know, God, if you just say God, it's not that big of a deal. But if you say the name of Jesus, that's a different ballgame altogether. Because, you know, God, that's just very general speaking. You can just use that word. You can be talking about anybody's God or just, you know, some general idea of this cosmic greater force that's kind of ambivalent. Well, when you say Jesus, now you've gone and gotten real personal. Which makes sense because he's a personal God. But that changes the equation. In my years in you know, university and in other environments, I've never had any issue, never a problem talking about God. Talk about God in the classroom, talk about God in whatever, you just talk about God. But when you say the name of Jesus, some people are going to hate you for that. Why? Well, because they hate Jesus. They don't necessarily know, you may even know why they hate Jesus. But this idea of one that you need to submit to, one you need to humble yourself for, one who did what you couldn't do, one that was the idea of one being necessary to save you instead of you being able to save yourself. Instead of being able to make yourself right with God, you need someone else to make you right with God is offensive. You can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be good enough. And so people get agitated at that idea that they're not good enough and could never be good enough on their own in the sight of God. That's an agitating idea. Makes people generally makes people. It can make people angry if they are not willing to be humble. If the prod is there, says you're going to be hated for my namesake. Well, you know, sometimes I, I think we have to ask because we we do this two ways. You know, people. Sometimes I, I find people. You know, they, they're followers of Jesus, or they say they're followers of Jesus, and they're like, well, people don't like me because I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Eh, nah, people don't like you because you're a jerk. Okay? And that's, that's why people don't like you, because you're a jerk. You're just rude, you're obnoxious, you're, you know, always got to be right about everything. So people just don't like you, you're a jerk. Okay? Nothing to do with Jesus. Hate to break it to you. So you have that, but then on the other side of the question, well, Everybody loves me. Hey, you know what? That might be a problem too. Maybe everybody loves you because you don't have any boldness. Maybe everybody loves you because you don't ever talk about Jesus. And sin. And things that are hard and difficult and that can cause conflict. Maybe that's why everybody loves you. Because you're a pansy. I mean, that could be true. Right? So it's like, everybody can hate you because you're a jerk. 
Everybody can love you because you're a pansy. None of that's any good. None of that's any good. You just don't want to rot the boat. So as long as everybody likes me, I'm happy. Well, that's not following Jesus. I mean, it seems like there should be some people, you know, I mean, if we're followers of Jesus, I mean, let's just, I mean, at the very basic line, like, people who enjoy wickedness should hate us, right? I mean, people that want to participate in human trafficking should hate you. Why? Because you're trying to stop their wickedness, right? They should hate you. So there should be some people in this world, I mean, at the very bottom, at the very least, you're doing some things, even if they don't know about it. They hate people like you, and therefore they hate you, even though they don't know the one, that you're the one that's behind helping set, rescue people's lives, okay? They should hate your guts. You know, Betty, who was with us last Sunday, next few weeks, she's in Mexico City, on the streets, trying to you know, rescue women out of prostitution. Guess what? People are going to hate her for that. All sorts of people will hate her for that. Praise God. Because that means she's doing something that matters. She's doing something that makes a difference for our Savior and King. So if nobody has any reason not not to like you for the sake of Jesus, you know, that's a problem. That's a problem. If if the wicked aren't frustrated by your life and by who you are, that's a problem. In you know, in some places it's overt, and in some situations it's overt. In other places, it's more subtle. You know, I understand that. You know, it's going to look different maybe at your, in your environment and your culture than it is in a place like we work in Zangalica in the mountains of Mexico where there are active, you know, Satanists and witches and, you know, things like that. I mean, uh, that's going to be pretty overt and obvious, you know, hatred. But we do have to ask that question. Am I living in such a way that the wicked have no problem with me. I'm living in such a way that the forces of darkness feel no threat. Now, there's some stuff in here that's difficult. I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What does this, you know, mean? There's some ideas here. You know, a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament have like a, a early fulfillment, you know, to lots of it. And then there's a later on fulfillment of it. And is this one of those situations where there's an early fulfillment? And here he's talking about second coming and end of times. Or is he talking about, you know, you're not going to get through all the cities of Israel, you know, before he comes. And he means that in the sense of his, you know, going to the, you know, to the cross. Uh, I'm not... I'm not skilled enough to tell you. But um, what I can tell you is this, verse 24, with no doubt, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he 
that he be like his teacher and his servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Satan, how much more they call those of the household. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not, do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, at first you read this, at the beginning of it, and Jesus, you know, I mean, it's really clear who you should fear. If you're going to fear, who should you fear? You shouldn't fear man, because what's the worst they can do to you? They can end your physical life. Ultimately, that's the end game of that. But God is able to destroy any person, both body and soul, in hell. Like, that's, if you're going to fear someone, fear God. But he doesn't stop there. Thank God he doesn't stop there. Because then he talks about our value. You know, your value compared to a sparrow. And that the very hairs of your head are nor one, num, num, are numbered. And then he says, therefore, do not, do, not there, do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Like if God cares for the sparrows, he cares so much more for you. You know, you're her, you who are made in his image. You who Jesus shed his precious blood for at the cross. You are of great value to God. So even though God has that power to destroy you, you know, you can live your life without you know, fear in the sense of fearing being destroyed. If you're in right relationship with God, you don't have to fear people destroying you because if somebody destroys you, they can't do so apart from the permission of God. Well, I mean, if God's okay with it, I guess we kind of have to be okay with it too, right? Then, on the other side of that, on the other side of that, there's God's great love and care for you that if you're in right relationship with him through Jesus, you don't have to fear going to hell. That fear is eliminated from your life. It's pretty great. So now you can live without fearing humans and without fearing the judgment of God. So fear is eliminated and is replaced by what? Faith. Back to the beginning of the whole thing. Faith. Living by faith. I mean, the whole scriptures, the just will live by faith. That's the result of salvation. The just will live by faith. Doesn't say the just are going to live by fear. It's just going to live by faith. So now, what this doesn't remove is our healthy respect for God that His name is holy and should only be used appropriately. That's never changed. That's just a constant thing. That what God cares about, we should care about. We should you know, walk in step with Him. We do understand still, you know, even though we don't fear the penalty of hell, we do know that God disciplines those He loves. If, you know, if we get off track, so, I mean, yeah, we've got to take care to respect that. But we don't have to fear because we're in the hands 
of God and God is loving and compassionate and gracious in our lives. And so Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And here again, this is this kind of clear choice situation. Who do you love more? Who do you care about more? Who do you respect more? People are God. People are God. And so we have to make sure that we are oriented, that you know, with our compass of our hearts, of our life, that it's pointed towards Jesus. It's pointed toward the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that we are going on that. And ever you see it off track toward care more about what people think, we, we need to adjust our direction. Because if our eyes, if our hearts, if our minds, if our thoughts, if our affections are not towards Jesus, we quickly succumb to the pressures, to the beliefs, to the cultural influences of our world. And what happens then? Well, we call things that aren't sins, sins. And then we start calling things that are sins, not sins start acquiescing. We start defining based on the world's definitions. The truth is given to us in the Word of God. We don't need our culture to tell us what the truth is. We evaluate what our culture tells us based on what we know from the Word of God. Which means we need to know what the Word of God actually says on all these things. We don't need the world's opinion to tell us whether adultery is right or wrong. We don't need the world, the world to, you know, come along and say, like it had, take France, for example, where the culture generally accepts, you know, people who are married, will each person at some point in that relationship will go and sleep with someone else. It may be known or not known, but it's not a big deal. It's expected in the culture, and when the people get married, they expect it. It's part of the deal. We don't need France to tell us, you know, we don't need that culture to tell us how our marriages should be. We need the Word of God to tell us how our marriages should be. And that's how we evaluate and say, you know, that's really messed up. And you can pretend that it doesn't cause a lot of chaos and pain. But it does. You can pretend that it's all cool and you're all free, but you're not. And so we evaluate it based on the scripture, not the other way around. We live in a time where, you know, Christians are sitting there trying to, you know, make the Bible say something different than it actually says. Well, it didn't really mean that. Didn't really mean that that's a sin. Didn't really mean adultery is a sin. Well, no, actually... It's always been a sin. Always has been. You know, and so we need, now again, that's with grace and with mercy and with comfort and with forgiveness and all of those things that are available to in Jesus. But we don't win anything 
by just saying, well, God was wrong. That's, no, that's how we lose everything. That's how we lose everything. And so we need to be clear with that. Let's stop there. We'll end chapter 10 and get into chapter 11 next week. But let's stop at that point. And remember and consider these things. But our main takeaway this morning, what I'd like for us, all of us to think, be thinking about as we go to take this bread and this cup, is am I living based on faith or fear? Where am I living based on fear? And let Jesus do his work in us, in that part of our lives this morning. But eliminate fear and walk in faith with Jesus. I mean, doesn't even that just sound so much better? I mean, who here wants to walk in fear this week? Who here wants to go, you know, I, I'm going to sign up for fear. I like the fear. You know, fear sounds good. Fear, worry, doubt, all those things sound great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check those boxes. Yeah, I want that one. Or faith. In our all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God. And it really comes down to the difference between fear and faith is who your eyes are on. If your eyes are on the world, your eyes are on yourself, your eyes are on other people, it's going to be fear. Your eyes are on Jesus, it's going to be faith. So, So the question is, like, how? How do I move from fear to faith? It's real simple. Eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You start to drift over to fear, eyes back on Jesus. Look at Jesus. Get your eyes back on Jesus. You know, and sometimes we need somebody to love us and to tell us that, you know, we're kind of going on. And I mean, if you see me in fear, if you see your brother or sister starting to drift over to fear, you know, hey, a little, a little gentle like whack and say, hey, wake up. Eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. Stop it. Stop it. We all need that at certain points in our lives. Lord knows I need that at certain points in my life. I need somebody to come up and go, Chet, man, what I'm seeing right now, that, that looks like fear to me. Stop that. Eyes on Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we pray that we would be people who operate and who are based on faith and not fear. That our fears would be overcome as we look to you, Jesus. As we remember what you did at the cross for us. As you shed your body and blood, as we remember that, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we thank you. And we see that death could not hold you. That we have faith because of your resurrection. We have faith because we've seen what you've done for your people throughout the centuries. We have faith because we know what you've done in our own lives as we look back at those touchstones in our own lives and see, yes, Lord, you were there and you brought me through. So, Lord, in our times of fear, in our times of doubt, in our times of drifting, Lord, help us to see you and help our brothers and sisters, help us to see one another and to point us towards 
you, Jesus, that our faith may be renewed, that we might be just, and that the just would live by faith. We ask it, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.